This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Possible trade wars. Tariffs on $200 billion worth of goods from China kicked in last week, with Beijing retaliating with its own proposed tariffs on more than 5,000 American products, including agriculture. Back and forth on the campaign trail. We have a young man, Buttigieg. President Trump referred to another Democratic hopeful, Pete Buttigieg, as Alfred E. Newman of Mad Magazine. He's also the president of the United States, and I'm surprised he's not spending more time trying to uh, salvage this China deal. Subpoenas back in D.C. I, I'm not ready to say the president should be impeached. I said that he, I think it looks from the report as though he's committed impeachable offenses. I think there is every reason why the investigation in the Congress should continue. The Democrats are more interested in subpoenas than solutions. All of that, looking ahead to the week of May 13th. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto of CBS News, joined once again by my colleague, CBS News political reporter, Caitlin Huey-Burns. Caitlin, how are you? Hi, great to be with you. We are uh, we are just talking here about last night's episode of Game of Thrones, and Ugh. We could see this one. I need some therapy. (laughs) (laughs) So we're both a little emotionally strung out from uh, that last episode. And I don't know how many electoral votes there are in King's Landing. But you know what? Back here in reality, uh, there's also something there's something more serious going on. And that is, as we tape this, the Dow Jones is down 500 points. Looks like it may go even further down. And this is after China announced that they would impose tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods in response to the U.S. on Friday, having increased its import tariffs on Chinese goods. Caitlin, as we look ahead to this week, the first thing on everybody's mind is going to be the political fight over this. If there is a quote-unquote trade war starting, what's the balance here between the Republicans and the Democrats? This issue does not necessarily break along partisan lines. We have seen Democrats who say they're glad at least somebody's doing something about U.S. trade policy. There's others who are going to say, wait a second, the economy is doing well. Let's not mess with it. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of Democrats on the campaign trail who want to oppose the president. How do they walk the line there? Yeah, and I think balance is is the right word for this because Democrats are in this situation where they never want to be seen as cheering on a bad economy or wanting the economy to fail so that they can score some political points. But at the same time, they're trying to thread their own economic argument. And because this field is so big, that argument varies a little bit. Kind of the overarching theme that we're seeing, at least on the Democrat side, is that the economy is good for some, but not for everyone. But at the same time, a lot of these candidates are trying to go in and campaign in Trump country. Mm -hmm. Um, You see Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren doing a lot of this. Uh, Biden also is going to be making this pitch. And so you're seeing some of them talk about trade policy, for example, and talk about 
um, items uh, related to the economy, related to trade, that they think can actually get to Trump supporters, can help convert them back to Democrats. It's a very difficult uh, task, but they're trying to uh, use this news cycle, really, and what we're seeing from the administration, the uncertainty that a lot of people are feeling to kind of make that argument, make their economic pitch to those voters. And we'll see kind of how this goes. And it seems like the messaging is going to run the gamut from, hey, he, when they talk about the president, sold you a bill of goods. This isn't good for you. These trade wars aren't good for you. And look at what's happening all the way over to, yeah, you know what? Somebody's got to do something. And out there in, when you talk about Trump country, agricultural areas, rural areas, certainly Democrats need to win back at least some of that vote, as well as, you know, suburban and ex-urban areas that are affected by the agricultural economy, even if they're not directly in farming per se. It's really interesting because you can kind of see this dynamic embedded in this rivalry between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Because in a lot of ways, they overlap in their constituency in some ways. They are really trying to win back voters, those who shifted from Obama to Trump. And their economic message, though, is is a little bit different. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Bernie Sanders was going after Biden for uh, supporting NAFTA. Now, this obviously doesn't relate to China, but it does speak to kind of the broader trade issue that is still kind of deep inside the Democratic Party, this divide over trade policy and over how to talk to the American worker. And so you saw Bernie really go after Biden on that issue. And I think that kind of drew a a, a line, um, a kind of a battle line that we're going to be seeing. And I think the field will kind of be focused on that a little bit. I think there's a larger context, too, which is that there's still a large portion of Americans who feel that the economy itself is not fair, which is distinct and different from whether or not you think it's good. And we have consistently seen on both the Democratic and the Republican side people saying that they don't think that globalization was necessarily a good thing. There are certainly elements of that in the Democratic Party. And that's a balance because you've got and you certainly hear that in the campaign messages of folks like Elizabeth Warren, certainly of Bernie Sanders, like you mentioned, that they have to speak to, as you said, at the same time that they're saying, but at the moment it's good. And yet looking long term, you know, they say, well, you don't think you can get your kids into a good college. You don't think you have necessarily, you know, a place to go for career advancement. Right, exactly. And that's kind of how they're threading the needle here. And, you know, this Democratic primary is also debating issues of inequality, of injustice, as they see it, that, you know, a lot of these candidates are talking about racial inequality, racial injustice, talking about things like reparations and health care and how some communities are are not treated fairly. That speaks to really an economic point. And I think everything in this Democratic primary is going back to that economic argument. And it's a way for Democrats to speak to voters who feel like this economy is not working for them and not working for them in terms of wages, but also not working for them in terms of where they come from, who they are and that sort of thing. An economic point in the sense that they feel that because there is or they they see discrimination, Mm -hmm. that therefore their economic opportunities are less Right, exactly. And that's certainly a theme in this Democratic primary. And it also extends to things like climate change. I mean, part of the Green New Deal, uh, a lot of candidates who support 
the principles of it, see it as a jobs program, see it as a way to kind of transform the economy. Now, they're going to get a lot of criticism from about that from uh, not only Republicans, but from some more, you know, moderate members of the Democratic Party. But that also is a way for them to talk about the economy. See, I'm glad you brought that up because the other thing that I'm looking at this week uh, hang on to this poll number that we've had out for a couple of weeks, which is that 58 percent, a majority of Americans said after the Mueller report, they wanted Congress to move on and stop investigating the president. OK, said and done. But then there were 66 percent of Democrats who said that they wanted the Democrats in Congress to continue investigating the president, which is to say that there is perhaps, a, again, back to this idea of balance or maybe a tension between the activist base of the Democratic Party that wants to see back in D.C. these investigations continue, wants to see, you know, Barr, Mueller testify, people be held accountable for not, you know, coming, you know, after being subpoenaed, etc. And not just the candidates out on the campaign trail who are putting forward these policy proposals and talking about everything from, you know, student debt and the economy, but also those other members of Congress who don't get as much attention back there, but they're all the folks from the swing districts that the Democrats won in 2018, the suburbs of New Jersey, the suburbs of, of Southern California, where all those candidates said the number one issue was health care, voters said the number one issue was health care, and they won on what might loosely be called pragmatism on, you know, getting uh, policy things passed. And that balance, right? Because, because look, on, on, on cable news, all you're seeing, all you're seeing are these investigations. All you're seeing is this, the Mueller report. I think it's a really important point, and that's why Nancy Pelosi's job is so difficult, because she won back the speakership really on the backs of those kind of more, you know, moderate Democrats uh, who won in those those Republican districts who don't really have it, see an appetite for that back back home. I can say, you know, it's really interesting being out on the campaign trail. I've been out a lot this year, been to a variety of different early states and even states like Texas, and I almost never hear questions posed to the candidates related to the Mueller report or related to Russia. They're always asking about health care. They're always asking about the economy, and they're always asking about climate. Uh, and those are the real issues that I think are driving um, even base voters when they're talking to these candidates or seeing these candidates, because I think it really speaks to this idea that, and I've talked to a lot of voters about this, that, yeah, they want to see Trump investigated. They don't like Trump. They want a candidate who can defeat Donald Trump. That's kind of their top priority when they're looking at a, at a candidate. But they, that's already kind of embedded in their, in their views. So they don't necessarily rank uh, the Mueller report in Russia you know, top among their concerns. And so Democrats in Congress, uh, and it's actually, there's actually an interesting divide in the field because you have, you know, several Democrats who are running for president who are in the Senate, people like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, others. Uh, and then you have others who are not part of Washington and are trying to make their pitch kind of distinct in that way. But you have seen, you know, Elizabeth Warren took to the Senate floor and called for impeachment. And she was reading the Mueller report out loud. And Democrats are kind of st stuck in this balancing act, trying to balance their oversight duties. They think that this president and this administration did not receive adequate oversight uh, by Republicans in the first two years. But at the same time, they're a little cautious about overreaching and they don't want to appear out of touch with what 
voters really care about and things that affect their daily lives. So it's a really tough balancing act. And I'm not sure, you know, how that's going to pan out. But I do think that voters are are less concerned uh, with that, more concerned about are they going to be able to have health care coverage and are they going to be able to pay for it? Can they pay off their student debt? Um, what does the economy look like uh, a year from now? These are all questions, I think, that are bigger concerns to people than Mueller. Does part of that calculus run beyond the Democratic primary from both the voters you Mm -hmm. talk to and when you talk to the candidates and into the general where there's going to be this split between those who say the Democratic Party needs to go really far left in order to be distinctive, in order to give people that, that clear choice, or they've got to try to woo back some of those voters who went over to the president but might come back. And, you know, talking mm-hmm. about impeachment sort of tangentially says you guys were wrong and you don't want to tell voters that they were wrong. Right. And this is kind of where Joe Biden comes in because Joe Biden entered the race a couple of weeks ago and he's really waging a general election campaign. He's not abiding by really any of these new litmus tests that have emerged in the Democratic primary, you know, things like supporting Medicare for all, things like supporting the Green New Deal and and other items that have kind of become kind of baselines for entry in this Democratic field. He's kind of trying to make his pitch as I'm the guy that is focused solely on taking down Trump and focusing on kind of the moral argument of it. And he will have a difficult balance to strike, too, because to your point, he doesn't want to turn off those voters who uh, supported Trump and may like, you know, some of the things that he's doing on the economy. Um, Balancing that with also trying to really rev up the Democratic base, which is going to be really key. It's going to be different, but it's interesting with Biden, too, um, because you're seeing all these other candidates now acknowledge him as the front runner. And I'm wondering kind of from your perspective too, you know, we see Biden leading in all these polls. What what is that reflective of? I mean, is that something that we're going to continue to see not only in national polls, but there was a a recent poll in South Carolina for example. He's he's he looks like the front runner, but I also remember around this time um, in uh, gearing up for the 2016 election, people like Scott Walker were leading. Uh, we know they never became president. Should we be looking at that? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm usually the first one to say don't look at the polls this time of year. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's just sort of blowing against the wind because people are going to. So, OK, we we do see these polls out with Biden in the quote unquote lead. Uh, which is to say, if you give people the choice right now, who would you vote for? OK, he's he's at the top. And look, to answer your question, I think that is setting a narrative. And I think that does seem to have surprised some people in in a sense. And, and look, the finding is consistent across so many polls. So it is it is real in that he's he's jumped out ahead. He's clearly among the top choices, if not the top choice. And underpinning some of that has clearly been strong support from African-American voters. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I think that for me, you know, it has some echoes of what we saw back in 2008 when Hillary Clinton coming off the popularity of Bill Clinton also had a lot of support from African-American voters. And, you know, it wasn't until Barack Obama won Iowa where a lot of folks said, oh, wait, maybe he's viable. Mm. And then in South Carolina, African-American voters and others shifted his way. It may take 
some time for you know voters to establish whether or not they think somebody else is viable or whether they continue to you know support Joe Biden. But he clearly comes in with that sort of you know halo effect from what most Democrats think was a really successful presidency in in, in Barack Obama. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned African-American voters and their support for Joe Biden because, you know, that is going to be the critical constituency for any Democrat in this primary. Because not only do you have South Carolina playing a critical role in helping to winnow the field, but also places like Texas where, you know, I was recently in Houston and this is a, a, a growing, you know, the demographics are growing in the in the Democrats' favor. Uh, I was at an event where candidates were there to speak to women of color, specifically issues that affect them. So that's becoming something that a lot of these candidates are are kind of tailoring some policy around. But I, every time I, I ask voters about Joe Biden, I find this, you know, deep affinity for him. But they're also interested in these other candidates, and I'm wondering if they're starting to um, just respond to Biden's pitch that he is is reliable. He's the reliable choice. Um, you may like these other candidates. You may be interested in them. But at the end of the day, I served in the White House. I, I served in, in an administration. Uh, I, I've been close to it. I can win. It's going to be a really interesting dynamic to see how that plays out and how these other candidates kind of grapple with that now that Joe Biden is kind of firmly um, in this race and, and trying to make that pitch. And I think part of that comes back around to what we talked about at the top, which was Democrats looking for ways to appeal to voters outside the cities, Mm -hmm. outside, you know, into rural areas, into to more exurban areas. And to some degree, Biden has to go out to presume that he can do that, at least among Democrats. But it also, Mm -hmm. you know, you made the, the good point and we can sort of not emphasize this enough as we go forward, which is that this race is going to be well beyond Iowa and New Hampshire mm-hmm. right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And because of the calendar, because so many big states are come early in the process, mm-hmm. that, sh- that changes the context. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why you see these candidates going all over the country, not just going to Iowa and trying to appeal mm-hmm. to various demographic groups. Right, exactly. I mean, it's really interesting to watch uh, what I would recommend audiences to to watch the candidates' schedules, look at where they're going. They're going to places like Texas and California. They're also going to places, you know, like Ohio and, and elsewhere where places they can make their economic pitch and try to reach uh, voters, but also places that demand a lot of face time. But what's also really interesting is that I'm seeing a lot of candidates start to focus on doing cable news interviews, doing kind of big ticket national appearances because they have to compete in those states like Texas and California, because they have to kind of get national attention to compete in larger states where it's really hard to do retail campaigning and very expensive. And someone who's kind of interesting to me to at least watch this week is Beto O'Rourke, who has been doing very small appearances focused on on retail politics as kind of one-on-one campaigning. He's trying to go everywhere and be everywhere and meet people face-to-face. But in the polls and and suggested in, in fundraising, he's not quite competing And so this week he's in New York. He's doing a big fundraiser. He's also doing an interview with Rachel Maddow. He's doing an interview on The View. 
He's doing these big kind of national uh, events to try to say, hey, I'm still here. Uh, Remember me. And it's just an interesting strategy. It used to be that candidates could really go to Iowa and just do the, the whole county tour and really one by one win over voters. And now it's become more of a nationalized thing with so many candidates in the race, you have to figure out how to identify yourself or separate yourself apart, but also just to gain some traction and oxygen, not only with Joe Biden in the race, but with Donald Trump, who's really taking it up every day. Uh, this competition is is just the terms of it have changed, I think. Indeed. So for folks this week, while we go out and uh, figure out where the... Uh <laughs> the Game of Thrones map and what happens what happens next uh, in the real life competition. This one is going to be a blast. So, Caitlin, closing thought as we're headed into the week. My thing to watch is how well the candidates can navigate a stock market that might be in turmoil and how they talk about it. And then how well the president can convey the idea if, in his view, this is something that's necessary, maybe some short-term pain for long-term gain, and that's what we'll be watching, whether that idea comes across or not. Absolutely. I think how these candidates talk about the president's trade policies is going to be something that I'm watching really closely. And whether we see some kind of divide in the field about how to go about uh, things like trade and other economic issues. Also pay attention to where the candidates are going this week. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of people to keep track of, but their schedules give us an idea of the voters that they're looking at and kind of where they find places to uh, stand out in the field. Geography telling the story. Mm -hmm. No one will be riding on any dragons. No. Maybe a white horse or something. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Caitlin Huey Burns, as always, a pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Salvanto, CBS News. Thanks to everyone here at CBS News Radio for all the help of the podcast, our intrepid producer, Alan Pang, and you, the listener. Thanks for downloading. Give us a rating if you like it, and we will see you here next Monday. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.